The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. The headline read, Iran puts five Christians on trial for their faith. The article says five Iranian Christian converts who were detained late last year will reportedly begin trial in Iran's revolutionary court this week. The five men were among seven arrested in October when security forces raided an underground house church in the city of Shiraz during a prayer session. They will be tried at the revolutionary court in Shiraz, Fars province, on charges of disturbing public order, evangelizing, threatening national security, and engaging in internet activity that threatens the government. This according to Christian Solidarity Worldwide, a religious persecution watchdog group. It goes on to say that judging from recent cases, it is likely that these men will be detained in prison for several years. The five imprisoned men are members of a church in Iranian denomination, one of the country's largest house church movements. The underground church network has grown rapidly in Iran because converts from Islam to Christianity are not allowed to go to formal churches. Alongside the growing network of home churches has been increased violent crackdowns and raids on those communities and arrests made of Christian converts, among them many international missionaries that are well known, some of them serving eight-year sentences for evangelism and threatening national security. Under Islamic law, a Muslim who converts to Christianity is on par with someone waging war against Islam. Death sentences for such individuals are prescribed by legal decrees and reinforced by Iran's constitution. This article was written back in 2013 by someone who specializes in Middle Eastern affairs. You know, over the past couple months and over the next month, we've been looking at the trial of the Apostle Paul in which Paul is put on trial simply, really, for becoming a Christian, for being a vocal Christian, for telling others about Jesus. It makes the religious leaders angry. And so Paul is put on trial. And sometimes as we read these events about Paul's trial and and the persecution, we wonder, what does it have to do with today? And we forget that there is a large portion of Christ's church that is under constant persecution. And just as these men in Iran so was Paul on trial for simply becoming a Christian. If you would open up to Acts chapter 25, it's page 934 in the Red Bible, page 1213 in the Children's Bible. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, that Red Bible is for you to keep. Uh, We love to give away Bibles, so please take it as a gift from Jacobswell Church. Uh, In seminary, I learned uh, something, one of the things they taught us was when we read a passage to try to determine authorial intent is what they call it. They talked a lot about what is the authorial intent of the passage. And what they're describing in that is why, why did the author of this book, of this passage in the scripture, why did they include this passage in their book, in their letter, whatever they were writing? What was their intended effect on the audience that they were writing it to? So as we look at the book of Acts, one of the interesting things is as we, as we, as we look at the trial of Paul and the persecution of Paul, it actually lasts from all the way from Acts chapter 21, all the way to Acts chapter 28. So that is a fourth of the book of Acts that Luke, the author, decided to include in this letter that he would send out to the churches. And the question is, why? What was the author's intent? Why did he he give so so much screen time to Paul's trial and Paul's 
persecution. Well, the commentators list two major reasons what, why Luke might have done this. The first was to vindicate the Christian religion to the readers. You see, throughout Paul's trial, what we see is that the Roman authorities constantly say that what Paul was doing was not illegal, that it was okay for Christianity to exist and to spread within the Roman Empire, at least for that time. And so Luke is letting Christians know that it is legal for you to be a Christian. There is safety for you here in the Roman Empire. The second reason is really to demonstrate how we can suffer well in the midst of unjust persecution. You see, for many hundreds of years in the Roman Empire, through Nero and other, uh, other Caesars, uh, there was a great persecution against Christians. This really lasts throughout history and even up to today, as we read earlier. And so the question is, how do Christians suffer well? What does it look like to suffer faithfully when you're in the midst of unjust persecution? And so as we read this, these are the things that Paul is encouraging us toward. He's encouraged, I'm sorry, Luke. Luke is encouraging us to remember, to know that there is a persecuted church in this world and that we can stand with them and for them by praying for them. Not just praying that they would live and survive and live well, but that they would stay faithful to the gospel message, but also to apply to our own lives and look at our own trials and seek to understand how can I suffer well in the midst of the trials of my own life. You know, one thing that studying the persecuted church does for me is it shows me how small many of my trials are. It puts many of my trials in perspective. See, according to Open Door USA, which is a study group of religious persecution, they say that each month, okay, each month, so in the month, uh, in the month of July, we'll say, the average, 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians. 214 Christian properties are destroyed. Usually by fire, it's either a church or, or a ministry center. They're destroyed by those who persecute Christians. And then every month, I don't know if you know this, every month, 322 Christians on average are killed for their faith. 322. So that's about everyone who's in this building times two. Every month, that many Christians die for trusting in Jesus. And so what we learn here is that this is a very relevant issue to the church today. Even if here we aren't standing trial, throughout the world, persecution is a reality. And again, this shows me, at least, and it shows us, I think, when we study the persecuted church, that some of our trials are really not worth complaining about. You know, we went on vacation um, this past week, and we go on vacation couple times a year. And one of the things we like to do is we love to go do fun events, right? So we'll go to the beach, we'll go to the lake house, we'll go to, you know, the Dells or whatever it might be. And we have a great time. And one of the things that I struggle with is oftentimes, you know, after we pamper the kids with this great experience, for some reason, they'll complain about something very small, right? Like we'll spend five hours at the beach and we'll be like, all right, it's time to go. And they'll say, but I want to pet that rock on the other side of the beach. We're not going over to, I have my hands full of stuff. We're going. But dad, I want to go pet the rock, right? Now, I'm not throwing my kids under the bus because here's the thing. I do the exact same thing with God all the time. I do the exact same thing with God all the time. There are Christians throughout the world dying for their faith. And what do I complain about? I got to wake up early on Sunday morning. Man, that drive time, wish it was closer. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> and so many times, studying the persecuted church puts our complaints in perspective, right? And so it's not that we're dismissing legitimate hurts and wounds and sufferings. We're not trying to do that. 
But there are some times that we complain about things that really we should not be complaining about. And so understanding what the persecuted church is good because it confronts our own complaining. And as we see other believers walking through persecution with joy and celebration, it reminds us that there is a joy greater than the trials in our life. And so I want to look through Paul's case here today. And and as I listen to several pastors preaching on this, it's interesting. They all struggle because a trial that lasts seven chapters is kind of hard to come up with new stuff. But this is God's word and it's good for us. And so we're going to walk through Paul's, the next stage of Paul's trial. And we're going to see the opposition to Paul. We'll also see Paul's appeal and also how certain we are of Paul's innocence. So first, let's start with Paul's opposition. Now, just to remind you of the setting, Paul had been held in jail in Jerusalem for a time. Uh, Sovereignly, God, through Paul's nephew, made him aware of a threat uh, to kill him. And so so the, the Roman tribunal transferred him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. At that time, the governor in Caesarea was Felix. And Felix heard Paul's trial, knew that he was innocent, but kept him in prison, hoping that Paul would bribe him to get him out of jail. So Paul was in jail for two years for really no reason at all. Well, Felix is replaced by another governor named Festus. And the reason why Felix is taken out of his position of power is because he is a ruthless leader and he has a lot of rebellion underneath him. And so Festus is replaced. Uh, Festus replaces Felix as governor of this territory. And that's where we pick up the story, all right? So Acts chapter 25, we'll start in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And so Governor Felix, I'm sorry, Governor Festus, I'll probably mess it up several times. They start with, both start with the letter F, which is hard. Governor Festus shows up, third day on the job, goes to Jerusalem because it's one of the major cities of his territory. He gets there and he has a prisoner in prison. It seems like he just has one prisoner in prison left over from Felix. But he goes to Jerusalem and he hears out the Jews because he knows that the Jewish leaders hate Paul. They detest him, obviously. They want to kill him. And so he wants to find out what is the reason why you hate him so much. And so he listens to them. And, he's, and they ask him, hey, just would you transfer the case to Jerusalem so that on the way we can ambush him and kill him? And we see how he responds. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, so said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. Now, so far, so good. Festus is doing a good job. He shows up. He wants to give Paul a quick trial. He's been in jail for two years. He goes to the Jews. He hears their complaints. They say, hey, can you bring him here? We'll, 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 we'll grant you favors if you bring him so we can kill him. He says, no, let's do a fair trial back in Caesarea. So far, so good. Okay, verse 7. When he, Governor Festus, has arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him. Listen closely. That they could not prove. Verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, 
neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. This is kind of one of those situations. The new governor shows up on the scene, doing a good job, a swift trial, a fair trial. He wants to go buy the books, do everything right. He knows that the Jews are really angry at Paul. They want to kill Paul. And so he's certain that Paul did something wrong. But then they come and they make these accusations. And Paul basically says, I didn't do it, right? And they have no proof of it. And so here he is. Paul seems to be completely innocent. And yet the Jews hate him. And so Governor Felix is in between a Festus, excuse me, is between a rock and a hard place. What does he do with this man, Paul, right? Because there's all this political pressure to penalize him, and yet there are no substantial charges against him. You see, Festus knows that if he releases Paul, then all of the Jews will be against him, all of these angry Jews, and they had significant political influence. And he would actually look like a, a, a new governor who didn't know what he was doing. But if he kept Paul then he would be guilty of the same thing the governor before him was guilty of, which was injustice. And so he doesn't know quite what to do with Paul. And so he makes a suggestion to Paul that he knows is wrong because he told the Jews earlier in Jerusalem it's wrong. He said, hey, Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on the charges before me? Paul knows. Paul's not dumb. Paul knows what's going to happen if he goes to Jerusalem. He knows their earlier plans. To, to, to take over them while they're on their journey and to kill Paul. And so Paul cries out, no, I appeal to Caesar. You see, in this passage, Paul was opposed by two major groups, two major forces. One group was the religious right, the Bible thumpers, the people who were zealous about their faith. And the other group was those of political persuasion, those who, who needed to keep the peace and maintain the peace and weren't sure how to both enact justice and keep things at peace. And so Paul was really being opposed by two forces here, of the forces of faith and politics. I, I mean, you, you've heard the same before, right? What are two things you never talk about at a party? Faith and politics, right? They cause tension. There's power in them. You know, the saying holds true even here. That faith and politics are a lot of the root of the tension against Paul. So let me turn the tables on us here for a second. Where, where do you, where do I sometimes allow our faith or even our politics to maybe subvert justice for others? Or, or, or not follow the gospel command to love people? You know, let me just give you examples from my own life as I was trying to apply this. How, how do I let faith keep me from loving people and from being just as God has called me to be. A while back, uh, we hosted a family at our church, or sorry, at our house, and they belonged to a certain denomination of Christianity. I'm not really sure if it's Christian or not, but they belong to this certain denomination that is just hyper-legalistic. Uh, they'll say things like, you know, if you're drinking, if you drink caffeine, you're going to hell, things like that. Um, and so, so they've done a lot of harm to people that I love and care for. And so this person comes and visits and stay at our house. And I notice this battle going on in my heart. Like, this is really hard to love this person because I know what, what, what teaching from their denomination has done to people that I love and care for. And so I, I let my own faith 
My own faith, my own passions keep me from following the gospel command to love people and to engage them. And I had to wrestle through this and pray, Lord, help me to love this person well. Or take politics, for example. About 15 years ago or just after college, whenever that was, I was really into political talk radio. And I just found as I listened to political talk radio, I just got more and more angry. And and I became less kind towards people with opposing viewpoints. Because what happened in the shows I was listening to is if someone called from a different political perspective than than the guy who was running the show, three words into their sentence, they would shut them off, hang up the phone, and then spend the next three minutes berating the person and telling us how, how dumb they were, right? And so I found this really influencing me and saying, okay, people who have a different political perspective really don't know what they're talking about. And I failed to see that they do have redemptive ideas that need to challenge me and change me and transform me. And so I was letting politics get in the way of my gospel command to love and care for people, to treat them with justice and mercy and walk humbly before God, before them. And so we see here this opposition to Paul, both from the religious right, but also from the political savvy. That's his opposition. Now we look at Paul's appeal. Verse 8. It says, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul, in a variety of ways throughout this passage, is appealing for justice, just simple justice. It starts with Paul's claim to innocence, that he didn't commit any crime against the Jews or against the temple or against Rome. But then he even says in verse 10 to Festus, you yourself know very well that I'm not guilty of these anything. And so he's simply calling Festus to be just, to judge the facts and to make a decision uninfluenced by the political sphere that is around him. Then as we continue, when Festus asks if Paul wants to be transferred to Jerusalem, again, Paul's like, you got to be kidding me. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is what justice demands. I'm here before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. And then it continues, and Paul makes this really interesting plea for justice. Verse 11, he says, If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul's like, hey, if I'm guilty, enact justice. Put me to death, right? To to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm, I'm okay dying. Like, if I did something wrong, put me to death. And then he says, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, No one can give me up to them. Paul is appealing to Festus for a fair trial. He's appealing for justice. And that culminates in his final appeal where he says, I appeal to Caesar. Appealing to Caesar, Caesar's court, was not something that anyone could do. As you may remember, Paul is a Roman citizen. 
There are certain privileges of being a Roman citizen. Not many people were Roman citizens, but one of the privileges was to appeal to Caesar's court for a trial. For us, it would be like going to the Supreme Court of our nation to appeal above the local court and then the state Supreme Court and go to the national Supreme Court. And so Paul says, I appeal to the national Supreme Court of this empire. I appeal to Caesar's court. And Paul does this because he knows that he will get a fair trial there. He knows if you take him out of the political climate that they're stuck in, that there's a better chance that they will judge the facts and that he will get justice, which is all that Paul is appealing for. You see, Paul is passionate about justice because God is passionate about justice. Paul could have Paul could have, um, he could have bribed the previous governor. The previous governor, Felix, was, was looking for a bribe from Paul so he could relieve him. He could have bribed him, but he stayed there for two years because he wanted justice, because justice is the heart of God. There's, there's so many verses I could quote on God's passion for justice, but let me just quote one from Deuteronomy 16. It's Moses giving instructions to the people of God as the instrument of God as they go into the promised land. And he says this, he says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. And then he says this, a great summary. He says, Justice and only justice you shall follow. See, God is appealing to his people to live justly, to fight for justice, to appeal for justice, to follow justice and only justice. The great civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. once observed this from his Birmingham jail. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And as Martin Luther King Jr. very well knew, To stand up for justice is very costly and can cost someone even their life. You know, in today's media, I don't know if you listen, I listen to a lot of sports talk radio, but one of the hot topics is a quarterback named Colin Kaepernick because Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem to take a stand for justice, to to bring awareness to this fact that there's great injustice against minorities in in our country. And so he took a knee, and I know some of you probably agree with what he did, how he protested. Some of you probably strongly disagree with how he protested. But nonetheless, he decided to take a stand for justice, to raise awareness of the injustice that is happening in our country. And as a result, he suffered lots of consequences from it. Um, He's had death threats to him and to his family. Right now, he's having trouble getting on a team because nobody wants to take him because of of people who don't want him to be around for whatever reason it might be, maybe racism, maybe other things. But now he's suffering the consequences for standing up for justice. You see, when we stand for justice against the prevailing winds of our society, there's always going to be backlash. People are always going to say, you did it the wrong way. You shouldn't have done it that way. But God calls us to stand for justice. We stand for justice for foreigners, for racial minorities, stand for justice for females, for Muslims, to stand for justice for the unborn, and yes, even stand for justice for Christians. God calls us to appeal for justice in the courtroom, but also in the schoolroom and in the workroom. 
We're to call for justice, to appeal for justice, to fight for justice for all people because this is pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul's opposition was from the religious right and from the political savvy. His appeal for justice was simply to be treated in a right way. Finally, we see the overwhelming evidence of Paul's innocence. We're introduced to another new figure here. His name is King Herod Agrippa II, and he is a Jewish king, and he oversees many territories in the region, including Caesarea and Jerusalem. And King Agrippa II would be the one who would appoint the high priest of the temple, and so he was a fairly influential figure in the community. And so King Herod Agrippa II comes to welcome Governor Festus to the territory. And that's where we pick up verse 13. Verse 13 says, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they started there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charges in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. You know, as we look at the story of Paul, no one really knows what to do with him. First, the Roman guards seize him in Jerusalem. They don't know what to do with him, so they send him to Caesarea. The governor, Felix, doesn't know what to do with him, so he just keeps him in jail. And now here's the governor, Festus. And he knows the Jews are mad, the Jews are angry, the Jews want to murder him, but they don't have any substantial charges. And so he's at a loss for how to investigate this, what to do about this situation. Verse 22 continues. Then Agrabah said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear from him. You see, he was seeing Agrabah's, he wanted to get Agrabah's uh, advice because Agrabah had been there for a while. He was a seasoned veteran and he was conversant in Jewish matters. So he figured this guy can give me some advice on how to move forward with Paul. Verse 23, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came, to great, came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So let's just stop there and picture this setting for a minute. It says that King Agrippa and his, um, his, we'll talk about this next week, his wife, which is also his sister, they come into this room with all of their pomp, right? Whether it be flowing robes or crowns or whatever it might be, the majesty, the trumpets, they come into this room 
And then so, so is also Governor Festus there. And then the leading men of the city, so the influential people, the big shots, are all there waiting to hear from this man Paul to help Festus to figure out what's going on, how to move forward with this guy. And then comes in this lowly prisoner, Paul, before them. Verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. Now here's the funny part. He says, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something, anything, to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indict, indicate the charges against him. Do you see how sadly funny this is? He says, hey, I got to send him to Caesar's court but I got no charges to send with him because he has, I don't know what he's done wrong. I know everybody's angry, but what charges do I send? Can you help me come up with some charges to send with him? Because, you know, if you're a new governor, like, and you've been on the job for a week and a half and you send someone with no charges to the Supreme Court, you're probably going to be a laughing stock, right? So he's like, can you help me come up with some charges to send with Paul? And so let's see if King Acraba is able to help. Verse 30 says, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or even imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So in verse 8, Paul claims to be innocent. In verse 10, Paul claims that Festus knows he's innocent. And now here in this passage, Festus says that he's not guilty of anything deserving death. And Acrebra says he shouldn't even be in prison. And so everybody knows Paul's innocent. And they don't know what charges to put together to send with him before Caesar's tribunal. Now the question is, what does, what does this teach us? What do we take away from this? When we take away from this that Injustice is a reality in our world. Injustice is a reality in a fallen world. I know that's not a, a happy thought, but, but the world isn't always happy. It's a real thought. It's a true thought. You have experienced injustice, right? And what this is reminding us is if that we are following God's path in our life, it does not mean that we will not suffer injustice. If you suffer injustice, it doesn't mean you went the wrong direction. As a matter of fact, it might mean you went the right direction. And so it teaches us that injustice will happen. This past week, I received a bulk email, which I always delete, and I don't know why I read this one, but it caught my eye because it applied so specifically to this passage. And this is what the bulk email says. It says, hi, Dan. I don't know how they knew my name. That's really nice. Hi, Dan. They must know me personally. She writes, I admit it. I was whining about a number of difficult situations in my life. People were making accusations that were bold-faced lies in an attempt to cover their unethical actions that I was taking a stand against. 
She says, I was offended and angry. I went to a trusted advisor and asked him, what was the most profound advice he'd ever received from the Lord? And he explained it wasn't a direction, but a question. And the question that he received, the most profound thing he ever said that he received from the Lord was this question. Why do you expect to be treated better than my son? Why do you expect to be treated better than my son? She says, I sat very still as the word sank in. I went back to my prayer time and suddenly my entire situation looked different. She says, Jesus' own words jumped out at me. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And she ends by saying, now whenever I am mistreated, I simply see my Savior standing quietly before his accusers, and it changes everything for me. Why is it that we expect our lives to be perfect? Why is it that we expect to to have no trials in our life, and we're surprised when there are some? Why is it that we expect our life to be so much better than our Savior's? You see, Jesus endured the worst injustice the world has ever witnessed. Jesus, who created the world and created mankind, was the Son of God. He was perfect. He was righteous. He was sinless. And just like Paul, he was declared innocent by the Romans after many accusations by the Jewish leaders. And yet, Jesus was condemned. He was condemned to death by men he created by men he was sustaining, by the men he came to save. Those men condemned him to death. And at the cross, Jesus endured the unjust sentence of men in order to take on the just sentence of us. You see, justice demands that our sin be punished, but Jesus had no sin. And so he took on your sin and my sin and paid for it in full upon the cross so that God could look at you and say, you are holy, you are innocent, you are righteous, you are worthy, not in and of yourself, but because of Christ and the injustice done upon him to satisfy the justice of God towards us. Let me end with this. You've probably heard the saying, life's not fair, right? Anyone ever hear that saying? Anyone ever say that saying, come on, be honest, life's not fair, okay? It's true, right? That's what we learn here, life's not fair. But usually the next thought after that is, life's not fair, get over it, right? I mean, that's kind of what you say to your kids. It's not fair, life's not fair, get over it, right? Really mature. We can agree to part of this statement. It is true that life is not fair, that there is injustice in this world. But our next response should not be get over it, but to look to the world that is to come, the world where justice will reign. You see, God's justice will always be measured out. It will always be accomplished, even though it might be delayed. There's a story of a burglar in Antwerp, Belgium. He broke into a house, and he stole a bunch of items. And I don't know if you've ever had your house broken into, but you feel deeply violated that someone's in there. It's a great injustice that happens, taking things that other people work for. And as he was making his, well, actually, he got scared. I don't, know if, I don't know if the owners came home or woke up or whatever. 
but he started to run off with all the loot. And he seemed like he was getting away with this injustice. Now he was going to get away. And so he's running away, and he comes to this wall. And again, he's trying to get away. And so he climbs this nine-foot wall and jumps to the other side. And when he lands in the other side, he finds out that he had climbed into the city prison. You see, justice was delayed. Not long. It seemed like justice was, like he was getting away with something. But justice eventually was had. That's the good news for us. You see, you will suffer injustice in this world, but God promises you that he will bring justice and that in the new heavens and new earth, justice will reign. God promises us this. 1 Peter 4 says that all men will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In Romans 12, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and this is a promise, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then it goes on and says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so what should be our response to injustice in this world? Our response should be mercy, should be grace, to fight for justice in a respectful way. But more than anything, to hope in heaven, where there will be no more injustice, there will be no more suffering, and there will be no more pain. You see, when Christ returns, he is going to flip the tables. And no longer will Christianity or Christ be on trial before men, but all men will be on trial before Christ. And if you stand in your own righteousness, you will be condemned. But if you stand in the righteousness of Christ, you'll be declared innocent. Let's pray. Lord, I know many here, maybe all here, have suffered injustice. Maybe at the hands of their parents or a friend or a stranger. And Lord, we confess it is hard to let it go. It is hard to forgive God. Grant us the grace to forgive. Grant us the grace to repay evil with good. Lord, we pray for those who have hurt us. We pray, Lord, that they would not experience your justice when you return, but they would experience your mercy and that your justice would be taken upon the cross. We pray that you would, you would draw them to yourselves to trust in you for their salvation, God. Lord, we pray for the persecuted church throughout the world those who are going through tremendous suffering, even as we speak, Lord. Lord, we confess that so often we are ignorant of what's going on around the world. So often we could care less, Lord. Help give us a heart to pray for and to fight for the church that is persecuted, that we can support them in whatever way possible, Lord. Give us ways to do that, God. Lord, as we turn to your table, to your supper, we are reminded that you are not only just, but you are also the justifier, that you took our justice upon yourself at the cross. And so God, pray as we take these elements, let us remember that the justice, that your justice will pass over us because it has landed on Jesus on our behalf. And may we rejoice, may we rejoice that he has bore our justice. And God, may we live for justice for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.